The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Ambassador Wendy Sherman comes back to the podcast to discuss her new book, Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. We talk about Trump. The president, in my view, really is not fit to be president of the United States. McCain. Whether you agreed with him or not, and he and I disagreed vociferously quite often, (laughs) he certainly had courage. And her mom. And so I had stereotyped my very own mother and not seen her in the fullness of what she was. Hear more of our conversation right now. Ambassador Sherman, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. I am thrilled to be here, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. So you were actually the second guest on K-Pop. So I was thrilled when you said that you would come on on the podcast back in August of 2016. Now it's 2018. So much has happened. (laughs) Indeed, I feel like it's been a lifetime, actually. Can you believe what's happened in the two years since we sat and talked? It's really, you know, I was with someone, I guess it was uh, Lawrence O'Donnell and MSNBC who was saying to Rachel Maddow, I need a new word for unprecedented. (laughs) Uh, Because every day, in every way, we say this is unprecedented. Uh, You know, I'm old enough to have lived through... Watergate, the Vietnam War, the violence that came uh, during the civil rights movement and, and the war, uh, and know that we'll come out the other side, but a lot of people get hurt along the way, and that is the part that's so incredibly painful. Um, I remember when we, when we talked, you, in, in your role as an ambassador and in the foreign policy world, you travel around the world. You've talked to our, our our allies and other people, your counterparts in other countries, and, and our non-allies, and our non yes, yes. exactly, <laughs> and our non-allies. And I, if I remember right, the number one question that came back at you was, I think it was like, "What are you guys thinking?" Because that was during the campaign. What are you Americans thinking with th- this Republican at that point nominee saying the things that he's saying? What are you hearing now that the nominee is now president of the United States and all of the things that he's done on the international stage? What's happened over these two years is that a lot of our allies and partners have stepped away from us. The president has isolated us from the rest of the world. And so they meet with him, they talk with him because we are the United States of America and it's sort of hard to ignore us. Uh, But at the same time, they're going their own way. They're finding new alliances, new partners. And in the case of Europe, which is the most important ally we have, we do more trade with Europe than anywhere else as a bloc. We uh, rely on them for everything from Afghanistan and uh, NATO being there for us after 9-11 in Afghanistan uh, to working to really make sure that China... Uh, plays uh, by the rules of the international community. And instead, we are really throwing them into the arms of China and Russia, even given the complex relationship they themselves have with both of those countries. You know, NATO, Canada, the European Union, France, 
I guess, basically any ally of the United States, the president has slapped them in one form or another. Meanwhile, Kim Jong-un, Putin, um, you name the authoritarian or dictator, and he puts them in a bear hug. How are the allies of the United States viewing this? Do Have they come up with a word for a new word for unprecedented or holy <laughs> holy smokes you know to be fair they understand that some of the impulse that created Donald Trump here in the United States is an impulse they have in Europe as well so we see countries like Hungary uh, and um, uh, the Czech Republic in Europe and Poland uh, who have moved further to the right Austria has always been pretty far to the right um, they live in a community with Turkey, which has become more autocratic over the years. Uh, we had the Brexit vote where uh, people in Great Britain were really responding to some of the same uh, forces that are happening here in America, where the gap between the rich and the poor, really the rich and the lower middle class, was growing, and people said, enough already, what about me? Uh, so they understand in some ways where this came from. Uh, and obviously, they have their own immigration challenges mm-hmm. uh, in many ways uh, tougher than ours. And yet, they have not turned in the direction that America has turned. They have held on, for the most part, to maybe changed leadership as Macron was. He created a party out of whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, still staying within the established uh, world order that has worked so well since World War II. You know, your answer to the last two questions makes me wonder, can the United States earn back, I was going to say win back, but earn back the prestige that it's lost? I mean, if our allies are going their own way, my big fear has always been the allies go their own way, realize, oh, we totally can do this by ourselves without the United States. And then the next president who comes in, Democrat or Republican, who is back in the mold of being the leader of the free world, might come back to a world stage where the world is like, hey, uh, welcome, but we've got this. Uh, There is that risk. My own hope is that if we can change our leadership in 2020 and in the first instance change uh, the accountability mechanism by uh, electing a Democratic House of Representatives in 2018, that uh, there will be a return. Uh, the world is changing, and there are multiple centers of power. We are not the only center of power anymore, uh, but we are still the last remaining superpower today. And we are a country with values that are incredibly important in terms of freedom and uh, democracy and checks and balances and uh, the right to assemble and to organize. Uh, And I think we can hold on to those values if we show the world that our people are going to respond, that we're going to hold the president accountable in 2018, and that we're going to reassess the leadership we need in 2020. You know, that reminds the number one word that popped into my head as you were you were responding was Helsinki. Tell me your reaction to that press conference in Helsinki between the president of the United States and the president of Russia. It was appalling. Uh, it was an embarrassment. Uh, you know, Europeans who have dealt with Ukraine and dealt with the aggressive nature of Russia uh, must have sat and watched and thought, oh, my God, uh, what, what's happening here? 
I think that the only person who thought that was a good press conference was the president of the United States. And, of course, Vladimir Putin, who is uh, just delighted every single day as he watches uh, the divisions in our country uh, and see us argue on every front, uh, which uh, just delights Putin no end. You know, it just occurred to me, I still to this day don't know what they talked about in in their private meeting or even in, in their summit. You're in this world. Have you heard anything about what they discussed? Uh, No, only what they told us. You know, I would imagine the interpreter did share a debrief with appropriate people. I would hope the National Security (laughs) Advisor at least. I think what all of us, all of this tells us, Jonathan, and, and really part of the reason that I wrote the book, Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence, is that you have to persist. You can't give up. Diplomacy is very hard work. It has to be tough. It has to be smart. Uh, It's going to have twists and turns. Even when we fight a war, as we did in World War I, which we thought was the war to end all wars, within 20 years we were fighting World War II. So you take what's in front of you. You try to solve those problems. You try to make progress. You hope that it is enduring. Uh, but to ensure peace, security, and freedom and prosperity, you have to be have courage. You have to understand the nature of power, and you have to be ready to persist. And I want to come to the book, those three words in particular in your book. And I want to ask you one more question sure. before we dive in. And that is, am I right to think that probably the most painful moment for you in this in the Trump years was when he announced that the United States was pulling out of the Iran deal? That was pretty tough. Um, I wasn't surprised. He sort of had telegraphed it was coming. And once uh, McMaster and Tillerson, uh, neither of whom I adored, but uh, were least uh, adults in the room, as we say these days, uh, for the most part, had left the administration, uh, they'd really held on to the deal, letting him uh, not certify it, but uh, keeping uh, the deal in place. Uh, But once they left and once he telegraphed he was going to withdraw, it wasn't a surprise. I was actually in Malta uh, on that day, and it was very sad. Uh, But it was most disturbing, not for me personally, President Obama, Secretary Kerry, Secretary Moniz, the team that worked on this deal so hard for so many years. It was most sad for the security of the United States of America and for the American people because the president had withdrawn with nothing to take its place. And the key thing here to to remind listeners, the reason why I asked Ambassador Sherman this question is because you were the one, you were the United States of America sitting across the table, not only just from Iran, what is it? It's called the P5 plus one right. and EU. Exactly. So the, President Trump makes it sound like it was just the United States and Iran and they hammered out this deal and that's not the case. This was a glo- this was a global pact. This was a global pact that was endorsed by the United Nations Security Council 15 to 0 by uh, the General Assembly overwhelmingly. This was a pact the P5 are the permanent members of the Security Council, the United States, Great Britain, France, uh, Russia and China. Uh, The plus one was Germany because they had been engaged with the Europeans for over a decade trying to uh, get Iran uh, to the table. And the European Union had been mandated by 
uh, the Security Council, the high representative of the European Union, in essence, sort of their foreign minister, to coordinate these talks. Uh, So, yes, this was a multilateral international agreement. It could not have happened without the United States uh, for a whole variety of reasons. uh, But uh, nonetheless, it couldn't have happened without our partners either. I'm going to recommend that folks go back to um, Cape Up episode number two (laughs) to hear Ambassador Sherman talk in more detail about the Iran deal. Right now, I want you to talk in detail about your new book, as you said before, Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power and Persistence. So I want to take each of these words. You started you started with persistence. Um, keep talking about that. How has persistence played in your life? Uh, in many ways. First of all, I'm a woman in Washington, D.C., in mm-hmm. national security and foreign policy. It is not an easy environment. There are more and more women in that arena, but it's been a tough go. And so there have been times along the way where I've had to sort of fight my way through and try to do it in a way that wouldn't burn me coming out the Mm -hmm. other side. And over time, I've been able and privileged uh, to be able to do extraordinary things because I've been given those opportunities. So I think that particularly uh, for women in my field and in general, uh, you have to persist. And we obviously have the great example of Elizabeth Warren sitting on the dais in the Senate uh, asking questions of Senator Sessions or on the floor of the Senate. And uh, Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, thinking it wasn't appropriate, and she persisted, and he said, and yet she persists. <laughs> as if uh, it's a bad thing. As if it's a bad thing. And that's really become a watchword. And I'm hopeful in these 2018 midterms, we will see the result of that persistence. There may be 100 women that are elected in this cycle. There are hundreds that are running, both Democrats and Republicans, Mm -hmm. more Democrats than Republicans, but both. And that will be just extraordinary. But to make these enormous breakthroughs never come overnight. Uh, And clearly, the most painful of all of this is getting a woman president of the United Mm -hmm. States. Hillary Rodham Clinton didn't make it uh, when Barack Obama did. And I think we were all incredibly grateful that America elected its first African-American president, but it meant that the first woman president had to wait. And then when 2016 came, many of us believe that a variety of factors uh, made it not possible for Hillary to get there, including uh, some factors that never should have happened. I I don't think that then-Director Comey should have delivered his letter in October, 11 days before the election. I think that stopped momentum that she had. It's not to say she didn't make some mistakes. She did. And I think there were other issues that were outside of her control. Uh, But nonetheless, that was really painful that we did not elect the first woman president of the United States. And yet we must persist. Do you think we 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 will ever elect a woman president of the United States? Of course I do. <laughs> uh, I think that's the other thing the book tries to lay out, which is a, a certain optimism that, yes, it's hard work. Diplomacy is not for the faint of heart. Politics are not for the faint of heart. And every single day, average Americans, ordinary Americans, get up every day, go to work, try to raise their families in the best way possible— And that's not easy either. So life is not for the faint of heart. But the good part 
is that there's joy along the way. There are unexpected opportunities if you're willing to take the risk to do them uh, and great satisfaction even when it's not enduring that perhaps for a period of time you've created greater peace, greater prosperity, and greater stability. So I want to read something from your book that is a bit persistence, but it's also, it's also courage. Um, you write, we know that men are told to push themselves forward while women are told to hang back. We worry when we are given more responsibility or more power, and too often we still believe that we don't know enough, aren't skilled enough, aren't substantive enough to do what the job we are applying for requires. This is when you're going for, you're reaching for, for the brass ring. The courage to reach for the brass ring and actually to believe in yourself. I think uh, courage and confidence, which is what you're really talking about here, are absolutely critical. And on the confidence side of things, Indeed, there's a Hewlett-Packard study that I refer to in the book that shows that men believe when they apply for a job, if they have 60% of the qualifications, that's good enough. They'll either bullshit their way, pardon me, through the rest of it, uh, or they'll learn it along the way. Women believe that they have to meet every qualification before they take the job. And quite frankly, there have been times in my life where I've been asked to do things, and I've even wondered, well, can I do this? And then I think about what I've accomplished in my life so far, and I say, what, what is holding me back? How ridiculous is this? You know, just go for it and surround yourself with a support group. Every place I've worked, I've surrounded myself with a support group of women in particular, but some great guys too, who can help me along the way and make sure I succeed. Uh, and on the days when I wonder whether I know what I'm doing, I have colleagues that I can turn to to regain my confidence to go forward. But that confidence is a little different than courage because courage, which we certainly discussed over the last days, I know uh, you'll probably have this podcast out a little bit later, but over the past days, we've had the funeral of John McCain. And whether you agreed with him or not, and he and I disagreed vociferously quite often, <laughs> he certainly had courage. I don't know that I would have had the courage he did to stay in the Hanoi Hilton even after I was given the possibility of leaving it uh, and uh, under the torture that he went through. And in my own life, early on, my father, who was in residential real estate, was challenged by his rabbi through a Rosh Hashanah sermon that people can read about in the book to advertise open housing. In those days, there were no open housing laws. And he said to the rabbi, if I do that, I'll lose my business. And the rabbi said, well, you asked me what you could do. This is what you can do. And he and my mother decided to do it. And uh, within a short period of time, he lost 60% of his business. Mm. He was willing to pay the cost. He never looked back. He changed the history of residential real estate and open housing in Baltimore City. The Baltimore Orioles came to him when they traded for Frank Robinson and asked him to find a place for Robinson to live. So he became a place of sort of go-to guy, and he found ways to take his business forward. But after a few years, he had to close his business and find other opportunities. So courage is about being willing to pay the cost. And hard things usually don't come without a cost. And we are unfortunately seeing these days here in Washington not much courage. You know, of course, I, I instantly think of Colin Kaepernick 
when you were telling the story um, about your father, and Nike has just put out this ad. the The tagline I can't re- the beginning of the tagline I can't remember, but the second half of it I can. And, and and it's you know when you have everything to lose, and you can argue he's lost everything by standing up for for a principle that's been distorted by the president. Not to get too far afield, but are you? Are you heartened? Are you encouraged by the kind of activism that we've seen around the country uh, and that we've seen from Colin Kaepernick, who, again, NFL star who hasn't worked since he knelt on the field? Indeed. I I am very heartened by the activism. I'm heartened by the activism of the Parkland kids who are running all over this country, registering registering voters. And one of the things they did, I thought, that was so inspiring is they went to Chicago, where there are gun deaths daily. Uh, and the folks who are organizing there, the young people who are organizing there, don't get a lot of attention. And the Parkland kids knew they could bring press into that room. And so they linked arms with the young people in Chicago and gave them a lift uh, for their fight, for understanding that the Parkland tragedy was horrific in Florida, but that this community, these communities in Chicago face that violence and that gun violence every single day, and nobody seemed to pay attention. So that kind of activism is marvelous. The Women's March after Trump was elected was marvelous. And more important than that, all of the women who are running for office as a result of it. So, yes, and I think the debate about press freedom, tough as that is, of the freedom to say what you think, what Colin Kaepernick uh, said and did, is very crucial to the values of our country. We see Beta O'Rourke, who is fighting for... um, folks' right to take a knee if they think that is the way to protest best. Their cause is getting a lot of attention, whether he'll win or not. We'll find out. But yes, I think there are indeed people who do have courage in this country. What I was most referring to was unfortunately the lack of courage here in Washington by the Republicans in particular on Capitol Hill, um, who really just want to win their midterm elections. And maybe after the midterms, we'll see a change in this town. I certainly hope so. The K-Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives and perhaps one day yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine, where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. Given the vociferous uh, conversations you had had with um, now the late Senator John McCain, Republican, Arizona, part of the firmament of the Republican Party, given that relationship and what you know of him, are you as shocked and appalled by the Republican Party as it is today in terms of not holding the president accountable, not standing up for not only American values, but the values of the liberal democratic small d order that the United States 
helped to create and maintains, I, I'm assuming we still maintain it, um, for more than 70 years. Absolutely. It's uh, incredibly distressing. I noticed uh, yesterday that a strong bipartisan group of senators have now suggested that U.S. NATO headquarters in Brussels be renamed the John McCain uh, NATO Center, which I think is a tremendous tribute. He was a great advocate for NATO, very critical to its development and to its funding and a belief in our military and uh, the good it can do around the world. So there are moments of that kind of understanding about that we are a the United States of America. We aren't just Democrats and Republicans. We actually are Americans who have a, a sense of who we are as a country. But that clearly is in some distress right now, mm-hmm. to say the least. And my guess is after the midterms, we will have more accountability, but it will be an even tougher time in some ways because... There will be even greater division for a while, and I think we just have to go through this period, and I hope, uh, and I trust, and I believe we will come out the other side. I want to bring you back to what you were talking about at the beginning of the courage portion of this conversation, where you're talking about how you surround yourself with a support network, people you can turn to. How hard is it to ask for help? (laughs) I think it's hard for all of us, men and women, to ask for help. But I've learned along the way that it doesn't say about me anything other than I simply don't know about something. I can remember uh, when I started as then-Congresswoman Barbara Mikulski's chief of staff, I was a bit of an idiot because I hadn't (laughs) been in Washington before. And people kept on talking about dear colleague this and dear colleague that. I had no idea what they were talking about. It took me a month uh, before I finally asked people, what the heck were they talking about? And of course, it is a dear colleague letter when you want other members of Congress to sign on to something you are sponsoring as a piece of legislation. You send a letter out to all of your members of Congress, and it starts, dear colleague. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, you know, it was a good lesson for me to stop being so silly uh, and simply ask, uh, because I didn't need to spend a month uh, trying to show I knew what I was doing. I could have simply asked. It was a perfectly right-on question. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I, I saw in the book, and it, it, this isn't so much courage as it is sort of leading by example or living by example, you wrote about how you um, and other women from the Hill would get together monthly, I can't remember if it was Chinese or Italian. Chinese. Chinese. Um, Take out. And you, at one point, decided, like, I'm going to have a family. Um, you got pregnant. And you write about how another woman in the group, after you did it, she felt comfortable to start a family herself. Can you talk more about that? And just sort of the power of living by example. Sure. I think we all are very grateful when we see someone break through and do something we always wanted to do but never quite had the courage or confidence to do. And that is something that we can offer to each other just in the same way. I mean, you know, Jonathan, here in Washington in particular, there is a boys club writ large and uh, folks are very tight and the guys club make look out for each other. Mm-hmm. And if a job comes open, 
they recommend each other for that job. Women are behind the curve in that way. Uh, sometimes uh, guys, particularly these days, when they feel like uh, they have to show that they are open, uh, recommend a woman for a job. Uh, but we need to do that for each other. Uh, and we need to insist that men do it for us as well. It is something that is critical, and I've been very lucky, whether it is uh, Hillary Clinton or Barbara Mikulski or Madeleine Albright or Nancy Pelosi. Uh, these are all women who really broke barriers uh, long before uh, the women of today. And each of them, in their own way, uh, found a way to get that leg up. And I've been very lucky to watch what they've done, learn from them, uh, work with them, uh, and hopefully I'm now bringing along other women. I, If a woman asks to meet with me or sends me an email, I may not be able to offer much time, but I will always answer. Uh, I do that for guys too, uh, <laughs> but I make women my priority. And when Madeleine Albright was uh, UN ambassador, she would always take the calls of the women uh, UN ambassadors. I think at the time it was an incredibly small group. Uh, I think it was only like uh, eight. And uh, one of her colleagues said to her, well, why don't you always take my calls? And she said, well, as soon as your country nominates a woman to the UN, uh, I will answer, take their call first, too. So you have to do some things that show uh, you're going to help people along. When I give speeches, usually, and there's a Q&A, which I really love. I think it's the best part. Um, uh, there is n never a situation except in all women's audience when the first hand up is a guy's. And then usually the next hand up is a guy's. And after the fourth question, I stop and I say, okay, there are a lot of women here. I know you have bright things to say. I know you were sitting there thinking about things. I'm not going to continue till somebody offers a comment or asks a question. Wow. You have to do these things to encourage uh, women uh, and people who may be reluctant to come forward. I think I'm going to have to try that, you know, when I, because I'll, I, I will do events and it's uh -huh. time for a Q&A and there might be African-Americans mm -hmm. in the audience and I see them there, but they're not asking questions. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should you know, like record scratch and say, all right, you over there. Yeah. <laughs> ask yeah. this I, question. I think it's important for you and I and everybody who speaks to hear a diversity of views. And you can't do that if... Uh, the same crowd's always the one asking the questions. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about power. Um, I like power. Yeah, no, I know. But one of the great stories you you tell in the book and um, you said in, in the interview that we did two years ago, and it has stuck with me because it just sends chills down my spine, <laughs> what um, uh, Ambassador Albright said to you. Um, I think it was something like you. You can fill in the in in this part I get wrong, but it was something like Wendy. When you are sitting at that table, you are no longer Wendy Sherman. You are the United States of America. Indeed, uh, you know people always ask me what it's like being a woman negotiating, and I always refer to what uh, former Secretary Albright taught me, which is exactly that, that I'm not Wendy Sherman, I'm not a woman, I'm not, in my case, an American Jew, uh, which is interesting when you sit across right. from Iranians. Mm -hmm. uh, I am the United States of America. And if you understand the power of being the United States of America, it's really quite something uh, and quite useful. It's not to say that all the 
other characteristics of me don't matter. They do. My having silver hair helps, quite frankly, as a woman. Then when I was a younger woman, people take me more seriously uh, than younger women uh, probably get taken, even if they're smart and capable and experienced. Uh, so all of those things do matter, and you should understand those dynamics and make use of them. But when you're negotiating as the United States of America, it is a very powerful thing. Uh, let's go. The, the book starts, I believe the book starts here, where um, Secretary Clinton, she's putting her team together, I think, and you find out that the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs is open. You throw your hat in the ring, you have an initial call, and then things go dark, and then you hear back, and then you're sitting in front of uh, Cheryl Mills, and then what comes out in the conversation? It's a little bit further into the book, but it's really important. Um, Cheryl basically says to me that issues have been raised about whether I'd be a team player. And as we had the conversation, I thought underneath that was too aggressive, too assertive, too tough, which I think every strong woman hears along the way. And what surprised me so much about it was Cheryl and uh, Secretary Clinton had been called all those things Mm -hmm. themselves, Uh, too tough, too difficult, too assertive, too strong, as if those things don't matter in the kinds of jobs that they did. And I thought the origin of this might have been when I was Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs under Bill Clinton. And quite frankly, it's a hard job because the people at the State Department don't like you because you won't let them go up to Capitol Hill anytime you want. They want because their priorities may not be the president's priorities or the secretary's priorities. And the Hill doesn't like you because they can't reach into the building and get anything they want except going through you. Now, people cheat all the time. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But nonetheless, I thought, well, maybe that's where it came from. I don't know to this day exactly what it is. And we got through it Um, And I became the first woman under Secretary for Political Affairs, and I'm very, very grateful to Secretary Clinton and to Cheryl for their support. I think I ultimately got there because Bill Burns, who had been the undersecretary and was about to be deputy secretary, you know, the diplomat's diplomat was uh, really the master uh, foreign service officer and negotiator at the State Department. And I'd worked with him uh, during the Clinton administration, uh, spoke up for me. And having validators, particularly the person who did the job before and did it well, is important. But I want to be humble about this, too. I did the same thing that I felt was being done to me, to my mother. Uh, When my mother died, she had been in real estate herself uh, late in life. She had started to sell condos in Baltimore. And I'd always thought of her as competent and capable, but not as a rock star. My father was the rock star. And um, her funeral was filled with hundreds of people. And not only people her own age, uh, but young people. And it turned out my mother had been the mentor for all these young real estate agents who looked to her to be their teacher. And so I had stereotyped my very own mother and not seen her in the fullness of what she was. And we all need to stop and make sure that we don't stereotype people, that we don't, you know, she'd always been my mom 
and I needed to see her in the fullness of what she was. Uh, and so I think that was an important lesson for me, taught me in part by that job interview process, but also my own humble experience. So you also had a meeting after you met with Cheryl Mills about the job. You then had a one-on-one meeting with Secretary Clinton at her home here in Washington, and she brought up the, Indeed. hey, you know, I, you're too assertive, you're too this. What was that like for you? <laughs> well, she basically brought up some of the same concerns about whether I was a team player, which I sort of thought was code for too tough, too assertive, too strong. And I gave her the same answers I'd given to Sherman. You don't have to take this very seriously. Mm-hmm. Clearly, someone or someones have uh, said this to her. And I left that interview still not knowing whether I was going to get the job. And, you know, I think in those circumstances, the best you can do is be as perfectly honest as you can be and as forthright as you can be. And you know here in Washington, Jonathan, applying for these very high-powered, very important jobs is a blood sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, you do the best you can, and then it either will happen or not. And I'm I'm grateful to the folks who came to support me. So in all of your experience then, what would you say is the number one rule for wielding power? I think the number one rule is to know yourself, to be authentically who you are, to not be afraid of being who you are. So both the downside and the upside When I met Warren Christopher, out of the blue, I got a call, would I come see Warren Christopher? I was a partner in a Democratic media consulting firm at the time. I wondered what Warren Christopher, who was going to be Bill Clinton's first Secretary of State, wanted to do with me. I hadn't a clue. So I went to see him on Martin Luther King's birthday. And he said, "Uh, you know, if the president agrees, I'd like you to be the Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs. And I said to him, If you want someone who knows everything there is to know about foreign policy and national security, I'm probably not the right person. I know enough. I've run political campaigns. Uh, My husband writes about all of this. We talk about it. I, I know something. But if you want someone who understands Washington, maybe I'm the right person. And uh He decided, obviously, with the president, uh, and I was nominated to be the assistant secretary. So you have to be straightforward about who you are and who you're not and have enough confidence in yourself to then use who you are and what you are to good purposes and to good ends. Uh, Power is not a bad thing in and of itself. It's how you use it that makes it good or bad. Then what would you say is the, the number one mistake people make when wielding power? I think probably the number one mistake is to either over-assert it or under-assert it. Uh, we all know young people who go to work on Capitol Hill and get Potomac fever. They forget the only reason people return their phone calls is because they represent right. someone who does have power. Uh, and uh, I remember when I ran Campaign 88 at the Democratic National Committee for Michael Dukakis. In September, everybody took my phone calls. By October, nobody took my phone calls because they thought this was a losing campaign. So, uh, you know, don't understand the limits of power, what you have, but also what the limits are. Have enough humility about it, and then um, you can be very effective. And I guess the other thing that's really important is that when you're doing negotiations, whether that's personally or 
in a work situation as I did in negotiations with Iran, don't feel like you have to take everybody else's power away from them. If we had taken all the power away from the Iranians, A, we wouldn't have a deal. Uh, but we wouldn't have a deal because they wouldn't have been able to make it durable back in Tehran. So you have to leave the people at the table with enough power to make real what you all are trying to achieve together. I can't um, leave you without asking you about the intense parlor game that's happening now, trying to figure out who's anonymous. Who is this person who wrote the piece for the New York Times op-ed page, a, a senior administration official, according to the New York Times, wrote a piece that basically said, don't worry, America, we are subverting the president's worst impulses, and we're, 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 we're hanging in there, and we're holding it together. Just your, When you saw that this came out, what was your reaction? Well, my reaction was many things, as it has <laughs> been for a lot of people. One, that person was telling us something we all knew. Uh, it was just one more validation that things were pretty crazy in the White House uh, and that the president, in my view, really is not fit to be president of the United States. I, I've said that publicly, so I don't mind saying it again. Uh, but... Uh, I do wish this person had had the courage to do it forthrightly, because to do it this way uh, is to have everybody become obsessed with what they've become obsessed with, which is finding out who it is, as opposed to addressing the substance of what was said. And for me, the most important way to deal with the substance of what was said by this anonymous op-ed in Bob Woodward's book, in what others have said, uh, including uh, Fire and Fury and Amorosa's book, uh, <laughs> crazy as both of those books are, uh, all of it has the same ring to it. And so the most important thing, in my view, is for everybody to register to vote, get out and vote, at least turn the House Democratic, if not the Senate, so that there can be some accountability so that we can move forward uh, and really hold the administration's feet to the fire uh, for what they're doing. One of the most painful things of all of the painful things we all have watched. Uh, I started life as a social worker. Uh, I consider that I'm still a social worker, but my caseload has changed along mm -hmm. the way. And my organizing skills have just been used to organize different things. Uh, but when I saw children separated from their parents without any system put in place up front to reunite them, when we still, months later, have little children, some under the age of five, these children will be traumatized forever. Their families and brothers and sisters will be traumatized forever. Their parents will be bereft forever. And for me, when this happens, and now the administration is ostensibly seeking to have long-term detention of these children, we don't have a foster care system that can handle American children very well. Uh, and these children deserve to be with their parents. So when these things happen... We should be focused on that and solving those problems and creating that accountability, not searching for, you know, where's Wanda? 
Ambassador Wendy Sherman, former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Senior Counselor at the Albright Stonebridge Group, and now author of Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. Thanks for coming back. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try The Daily 202's Big Idea, a show that brings you daily analysis from political correspondent James Holman. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.